Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Let's go back. February 2019. Trump's former executive vice president and special counsel Michael Cohen is testifying before Congress about some business documents. Mr. Trump is a cheat. Documents that Trump prepared for a bank when he wanted to get a loan. As previously stated, I am giving to the committee today three years of Mr. Trump's personal financial statements from 2011, 2012, and 2013. The documents claimed that over this period, Trump's net worth soared from $4.6 billion to $8.6 billion. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asked Cohen about this practice of sometimes overvaluing assets, sometimes undervaluing them. To your knowledge, was the president interested in reducing his local real estate bills, tax bills? Yes. And how did he do that? What you do is you deflate the value of the asset, and then you put in a request to the tax department uh, for a deduction. Deflate, inflate. It's the Trump way. We have documents showing that from the Trump Organization's own tax filings. It might even have broken the law. Welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica, an open investigation into the business of Trump. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Our story today is about two buildings. The first, the Trump International Hotel and Tower on the southwest corner of Central Park. The opening sequence to The Apprentice flashes to a picture of this building. My name's Donald Trump, and I'm the largest real estate developer in New York. I own buildings all over the place. He doesn't actually own this whole building. The other building we're going to talk about is in Lower Manhattan, 40 Wall Street. Trump brags about it a lot. So many great assets, 40 Wall Street. 40 Wall Street. Actually, before the World Trade Center was the tallest. And then when they built the World Trade Center, it became known as the second tallest. And now it's the tallest. The two buildings have something in common. Trump wanted to pay as little as he could in taxes on them. And he wanted to take the most favorable loans he could against them. To do both of these things, he filed two sets of documents. One set to taxing authorities made the buildings look less profitable. The other set of documents to his lender made them look more profitable. Both documents are supposed to be using, at least in some cases, the same underlying numbers. Apples to apples. Heather Vogel of ProPublica got both sets. And she found they don't match up. There are big differences. Heather spoke to over a dozen experts in accounting, law, and real estate for this story. Not a single one of them could explain the discrepancies away. The Trump Organization declined to comment for this story. 
One of the experts we spoke to is Ann Milgram, the former attorney general of New Jersey. We could all imagine a small business or a mom-and-pop shop struggling on this type of paperwork or maybe not lining things up exactly. But we're talking about a major business organization with a lot of properties that should be perfect. The forms were not perfect. I mean, at the end of the day, that is fraud. That's Nancy Wallace, a professor at UC Berkeley. We'll hear more from her and Ann Milgram later in the episode. Here's Heather Vogel. When you put things on a document that are being presented either to governments, public officials, or to investors, there is a much higher level of expectation that that information is accurate. What are your obligations to a taxing authority in terms of truthfully filling out documents? I mean, you're supposed to truthfully fill out the documents. And what about to lenders? To lenders, you're supposed to provide accurate information. You're not supposed to inflate and deflate just because you want more money. The penalties for lying to lenders can be significant, from fines to criminal fraud charges. The tax forms say, by signing tax commission forms, the signer states that he or she has read the forms before signing them, affirms the truth of the statements made, including any statements on attachments or pre-printed on the forms, even if made or inserted without the signer's knowledge, and understands that false filings are subject to all applicable civil and criminal penalties. Donald Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, is serving prison time for understating his income to the Internal Revenue Service and for overstating his income to banks he wanted to loan him money. Michael Cohen is also serving prison time for, among other things, making false statements to a bank. And Donald Trump? A lot of people want to see his taxes. He's gone to court three times to make sure they stay secret. In New York, there's a criminal investigation. A grand jury is looking at whether Trump's business committed felonies in New York. In that case, Trump's lawyers argue no matter what crime a sitting president might have committed, even if it was before he was president, he cannot even be investigated. A federal judge called that argument repugnant to the nation's governmental structure and constitutional values. The court fight is ongoing. Trump's tax returns and financial documents remain walled off. Heather Vogel found some anyway. This is the first time I've been here. I mean, I've been through Columbus Circle a million times, but I didn't really focus on it before. Kind of monolithic. <laughs> it's just sort of heavy, dark. It's all glass, but it has a very... Though Trump doesn't own most of this building on Central Park, the Trump International Hotel and Tower provides a number of streams of income for him. Heather and Trump Inc. producer Alice Wilder went there recently. And here we are. Trump International Hotel and Tower. Big letters. I'm surprised that the letters are in white and not gold. I would, that, you know, that is exactly the thought that I just had. I was like, why are the letters not in this kind of bronzy, brassy kind of tone? Trump owns two commercial units on the ground floor. One is rented to the restaurant Jean-Georges. But here we're coming around the corner to the other space that he does own, which is the parking garage underneath. And it's a valet park, so I don't think we can actually go in there and check it out or anything. But that is the other space that he rents to a commercial tenant. 
He also has an easement or roof rights on the roof where he is able to lease antennas, which is a very profitable thing to be doing. So he's got income, an income stream from that activity, too, in that building. Trump is supposed to be reporting that income to the city on property tax forms. The information on those forms might have remained entirely secret. But the Trump Organization appealed to the city to lower its taxes on the property. It turns out that if you appeal your taxes, that you have to submit a form that has your expenses and income detailed that is public. So I thought, why don't I try to get a hold of that? So you filed a Freedom of Information request? So I filed a Freedom of Information uh, request uh, last year in November. And then finally in June of this year, I got some documents back. And you began to compare the numbers. And I started comparing the numbers. Three experts told Heather that Trump is supposed to say how much he's making from the restaurant, the parking garage, and the roof where the antennas are. There's a box on the tax form for income from telecommunications equipment. It's very straightforward. And they said that, you know, that's where the information should be reported. Was it reported? No. What was there? Nothing. For nine years, there was nothing reported in that box. Heather had already scrutinized a different set of Trump financial documents, a detailed list of income and expenses that the company provided when Trump was trying to get financing for the building. The information is in disclosure forms that were filed as part of what's called a commercial mortgage-backed security. ProPublica editor Marilyn Thompson suggested this line of inquiry. And so we started looking into these securities that have information about the loans. Because they're one of the few places where Trump is actually making disclosures. Exactly. So it's one of the few places you can find out a little bit more information on his business, unlike sort of the nuts and bolts and lift the hood and take a look and see what's underneath. Heather noticed that on the loan documents, Trump listed money he was making by renting roof space for the antennas on top of his Columbus Circle building. But on his city tax filings... That's the box he left blank. Heather brought her findings about the missing income to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's office. A spokeswoman said, The city is looking into this property, and if there's been any underreporting, we will take appropriate action. Donald Trump took over 40 Wall Street in the 1990s. His casinos had recently declared bankruptcy. He'd stiffed his mainstream lenders. The city was just emerging from a recession. The financial district was a ghost town. I mean, you could literally walk in the street and not fear that you're going to be hit by a car. This is Abe Wallach. In the 1990s, he was Donald Trump's vice president for acquisitions and finance. Almost the same title Michael Cohen later had. And I said to Donald, you know, I think I'm going to go down to Wall Street and look for a major building for you. He says, I don't want to go down to Wall Street. I don't want to be in Wall Street. It's dead. I said, it's dead right now, Donald, but it's New York. And, you know, things turn around in New York. Wallach told Trump he could get the building for cheap. Maybe $10 million. Maybe $1 million. That excited him. But not enough. Wallach had to make sure the skyscraper, which is 71 stories tall, looked really, really big to Trump. That meant seeing it from a distance. So I'm stage managing. I took a cab down one day, and I said to the cab driver, take the East Side River Drive, and then you could see the building from a distance. And then I said, go further. You could see it uh, larger. 
but when you got to the building, you couldn't see anything. Wallach took Trump downtown on the route he'd planned. He says, boy, that's a big building. Wallach knew what his boss wanted. It was huge. It needed renovation, and he could buy it cheaply. Wallach flew to Germany to convince the owners to lease the property to Trump for 250 years. Right away, Trump started to squeeze money out of the Germans. He wanted 10 years of free rent. Wallach got it. And then Donald would send me over to Germany every couple of months to get another couple of years of free rent. And he gave it. 40 Wall Street made Trump money. He thought of every angle, including money targeted to help small businesses devastated by the 9-11 attacks. Trump applied for a special grant from New York State for small businesses in Lower Manhattan that had lost all their customers who had worked in the Twin Towers. Delis, dry cleaners, that sort of thing. Trump got one of these grants for $150,000 for 40 Wall Street. And Trump appealed his property tax assessments repeatedly. 2009, 2010, 2011, all the way through his presidential campaign. The one he said he was paying for himself. I'm spending money like crazy. I'll probably have over, maybe close to or over, $100 million of my money spent on the campaign. During the campaign, a huge loan on 40 Wall Street for $160 million was coming due. Trump wanted to refinance it. Because he couldn't easily get lending from a mainstream bank, he went to a so-called alternative financer, which lent him the money, and then packaged the loan into one of those commercial mortgage-backed securities. To do that, the lender had to file disclosures, just as it had done for the Trump International Hotel and Tower at Columbus Circle. We'll be right back. We're back. Heather got the tax documents and the loan documents for 40 Wall Street, which she could compare. She made a spreadsheet. So this says... T-I-H-T, commercial? Yeah, so, like, I mean, my spreadsheets have spreadsheets. I mean, it's the numbers did not line up. Some of these numbers in different formats and comparing them. Well, it's funny, because whenever I see something that doesn't match, it's like, I think, oh, I'm just not understanding. Maybe I just don't get it. And so then I ask, you know, I start asking a ton of questions to a ton of people, assuming it's my error, frankly. And it's this whole process where, as time goes on, I start realizing, no, no, that's not my error. I'm not misreading those documents. Those actually are numbers that should look a lot more alike. There were inconsistencies in the rents listed, adding up to millions of dollars. The insurance numbers didn't match. In some cases, not even the occupancy rates matched. Heather took her findings to an expert. My name is Kevin Reardon. And I'm a clinical instructor at Montclair State University. Just previously, I was the executive director for the Center of Real Estate at Rutgers University. Before that, he spent years in finance and real estate. So we were able to obtain, Heather was able to obtain, 
the documents on the selling of the securities, which included the 40 Wall Street loan. This is what investors would be looking at to decide if they want to buy in. Documents for the commercial mortgage-backed security, CMBS. And in those documents, there are historical disclosures. Specifically, in the documents of the CMBS loan, it said that at 12-31-2012, the occupancy of the building was 58.9%. On the tax filings, it said 81%. That's not a rounding error. So this raised my question, so why would they be so materially different? Because that is material. That's not a rounding error. And so... Why? What is the answer? Why would they be? As an investor, when you're looking at that situation where you have occupancy going from 60% to 70% to 85%, you're getting pretty excited that this building has got energy behind it. It's got a good story behind it. The company told a lender that occupancy rose to 95% a few years later. But there were problems. So an A building, by definition, is a really good building, right? Then there's a B building, which is not as good as an A building. These are terms of art in Manhattan real estate. This building is probably somewhere between a B minus and maybe a C plus, okay? Trump took out a $160 million loan against this building. His lender was Ladder Capital. It was an alternative lender, and it was taking Trump's loan, packaging it up with other loans, and then it was turning around and offering pieces of the package to investors. Ladder was both the lender and the seller. And to make a profit, it had to sell the loan for more than its face value. And to do that, it had to make promises to the banks that would package the loan into securities for investors in a prospectus. That's where we see Trump fiddling around with the occupancy numbers. In the prospectus to the investors in the capital markets, we'll make reps and warranties about the loan, that certain due diligence procedures were done, certain documentation was obtained, not only obtained, but was reviewed. Outside counsel will make opinion as to the legality of the loan and other things about the loan that is in conformity. So this is one set of scrutiny that these loan documents are supposed to go through. There's a second level, the rating agencies. The rating agency is going to also look at the documentation around this loan, not so much historical, but more what's in place today, what's their view of this particular loan, because that has an impact on the profitability. In theory, Ladder and the ratings agencies are supposed to assess these claims. We don't know how closely they looked at the documents. We do know the claims were passed along to investors. So all of that's going on, it all gets packaged, and then it shows up at my doorstep to say, do you want to buy investment-grade bonds? And now Trump's loan the one based on these made-up numbers, is part of the bond market. The building never performed the way Trump promised investors it would. Instead, it got put on what's called a watch list. Heather has obtained what I call the servicing documents, which have been put out to investors telling what the cash flow of the property is. 
And we are 10% away from wherever that number is. We've never got to that number. And this is the number that was held out to the investors as where the income was likely to be almost immediately after the loan was made. Yes. And that's another thing. They don't disclose the time period as to when they're going to hit, we'll call it the number, but it should be relatively close. The loan was closed in the spring of 2015. We are now the fall of 2019. Heather has obtained financial performance through December 2018, and we're still 10% off. And we're talking probably around $2 million. And that's a lot. That would be a lot to investors. I suspect there are people who are listening, or might listen, who would think, yeah, it was real estate. It's Wall Street. Everybody lies. Everybody wants to tell a good story. That happens all the time. Does it? You know, there's this puffery, right? I can say it's a great building. I can use a lot of uh, terms around the building, but... It's hard to argue numbers. Like, rent roll is the rent roll. The terms of the leases with the tenants are the terms of the leases. And that's black and white. There's something else you should know about the company that gave Trump these loans, Ladder Capital. A man named Jack Weisselberg is a top executive there. Jack Weisselberg's father... Allen is the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. Allen Weisselberg has been an employee of the Trumps, first Fred Trump, then Donald Trump, for over 40 years. And Jack Weisselberg, the son who works at Ladder Capital, has benefited from his relationship to Trump through his father. Allen was deeded a condominium from one of Trump's condo buildings, Trump Park East, for pretty far below what was considered market value at that time. Um, it was around $150,000 in the early 2000s. Or this, I think this was in 2000. And Alan deeded it three years later to his son, to Jack, for around the same amount. And then a few years after that, Jack turned around and flipped it for more than three times as much. So he made um, a nice profit on on that relationship. Do we have reason to believe that Jack Weiselberg didn't properly scrutinize this loan because of the family relationship? We don't know. Ladder Capital declined to have any of its employees interviewed on the record for this story. So we don't know if there was any effort to recuse him from um, consideration of matters related to this loan or not, or if he was the one who brought it in. or We just don't know anything. The Trump Organization and Ladder Capital have long been tied together. They refinanced Trump Tower in 2012. They did Forty Wall. They did the Columbus Circle property. So this is a relationship that's been continuing for years. Those secret payments to Stormy Daniels that Cohen was sent to prison for, Cohen says Alan Weisselberg signed off on them. Alan Weisselberg cooperated with the U.S. Attorney's Office in its investigation of Cohen and was given limited immunity. But Alan Weisselberg is still under scrutiny. Congress is looking at his financial transactions. So, we learned recently, is the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr. Weisselberg didn't respond to questions for this story. When Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to making misleading statements to a bank in August of 2018, this is what he said in court. On or about 
February of 2016 in order to be approved for a HELOC, a home equity line of credit. I reviewed an application form that did not accurately describe the full extent of my liabilities. I did not correct the inaccurate information on the form. I signed it knowing it would be submitted to the bank. The judge interrupted. Did you know those statements were false when you made them? Cohen answered, They were omitted, Your Honor, as opposed to being false. Well, the judge said, you knew it was false, that it falsely depicted your financial condition, didn't you? Yes, Your Honor, Cohen said. And you omitted those statements, did you not, for the purpose of influencing action by a financial institution? Yes, Your Honor. So, we asked ourselves, if Cohen went to prison for lying to a financial institution, how are we to understand what his boss did? We went first to an expert in real estate and financing malfeasance. My name is Nancy Wallace. I'm a professor at UC Berkeley in the Haas School of Business. Heather discussed some documents with you that yes. she had found uh, by looking in both uh, loan disclosures and the New York City Tax Commission filings. Yes. What did you make of those documents? So she used two data sets that are really accurate, and if they differ, it's surprising, and it's totally reasonable to ask the question why. And just looking at the whole picture, the loans, the tax documents, and the discrepancies, can you give listeners a sense, like, how bad it is? So on the loan side of it, it can be litigated if you fraudulently fill out loan documents. I mean, at the end of the day, that is fraud. And then given that the loans that your colleague is looking at are securitized, those are now bonds. And now we are in the area of securities fraud. And we've already gone there. I mean, there is still massive litigation from the subprime mortgage crisis. And these are very large loans. So I think it's really bad. For the city of New York, obviously it's bad because these are property tax receipts. And those are things that pay for schools and roads and police and other things uh, that these buildings are receiving services for and are not paying their fair share. And that's when the city of New York should get involved. Right. I guess the sort of point of sort of confusion is like, is everybody doing this in New York and Trump just got caught? Now, in New York, um, yeah, New York is a market that is a pretty aggressive, rough and tumble market, I think more so than any other market in the country. New York and New Jersey are kind of notorious for a very rough and tumble real estate climate. But that doesn't excuse illegality, and especially illegality that gets into our national bond markets. There aren't special rules for New Yorkers, and there certainly aren't special rules in this case. So it's bad. But did Trump commit a crime? We had one more person to ask. Ann Milgram. I teach at NYU School of Law. I'm the former attorney general for the state of New Jersey and a former local federal and state prosecutor, and I co-host Cafe Insider with Preet Bharara. Heather and I brought her the documents. It's the income for just this property, yes. so each yes. one is individualized. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's all real estate. 
So there's two ways I would think about this. And I would think about if there was an amount of income that was underreported in an effort to pay lower taxes and then essentially overreported in an effort to be able to secure these loans, that's one huge potentially criminal problem. There are red flags here. And certainly if I were sitting in a prosecutor's office, I would want to ask a lot more questions. So you've spent a lot of time in prosecutor's office and running prosecutor's office. If these documents were presented to you as a beginning point, what would you think? The government has a vested interest in making sure people are honest when they file forms with the government and also that they report the accurate amount of money so that they pay the right amount of taxes. Do you think that, just to be clear, that there could be something criminal here? You know, my feeling on this stuff is it looks problematic. So I think it would be too early for me to say beyond the fact that it certainly looks troubling and would be something I would want to know a lot more about. If you were sitting in a prosecutor's office. Exactly. Which I'm not. The question of whether the president can even be criminally investigated by a local prosecutor for anything he's ever done, even as a private businessman, is now before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. A ruling could be months away. This episode was produced by Alice Wilder and Katherine Sullivan. The executive producer is Meg Kramer. The engineer is Jared Paul. The editors this episode were Nick Varshaver, Eric Umansky, and Robin Fields. Special thanks for their help this episode to ProPublica's Marilyn Thompson, Abe Wallach, Kevin Reardon, Melanie Brock, Nancy Wallace, and Ann Milgram. Ann Milgram has a podcast, Cafe Insider. She hosts it with Preet Bharara. I subscribe, and you should too. Steve Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica, and Emily Botine is the vice president of original programming at WNYC. The original music is by Hannes Brown. 